0: Thank Well, thank you so much for coming this week. I know we're at the end of our Second Samuel study, so thank you for hanging in there and being disciplined to the end. Uh, Last week, I had the privilege of spending a day with our pastors at the NRB convention. That's the National Religious Broadcasters Convention. It was in Anaheim and Focal Point Radio was there. And you know how conventions are. They have places where you can go to uh, different rooms or different areas to hear different teachings. They have um, displays and exhibits. And one of the exhibits that they had, uh, I saw people sitting on these circular seats with these things strapped to their heads. And it was a virtual reality exhibit. I don't know if you've seen virtual reality before where they put these things on your head and it makes you feel like you're in another place or in another dimension. Well, this one uh, was for a new film called Seven Miracles, uh, which displays the seven miracles of Jesus in the book of John. And they showed me the clip from the beginning, which was the first miracle of Jesus in the book of John, John chapter two, where Jesus was at a wedding and he turned the water into wine. And it was so neat being there in this virtual reality because you could look all the way to your right, you could look all the way to your left, you could look behind you and you would see all the party guests there, the wedding guests and their tables were there and you could look down at the food and there was lots of hummus and pitas and it just looked so fun. And there I was in the middle of the wedding. And then I saw Mary approach Jesus and say, you know, they're out of wine. So Jesus went back to where the servants were and he ordered them to uh, fill these clay pots with water. And then when they took those clay pots that were filled with water, they poured them out and this wine flowed from the clay pots. And one man at the wedding stood up and said, normally the host serves the best wine first, but you have saved the best for last. And I was thinking, yeah, this is a great wedding. And then it ended. You know, and sitting there thinking, wouldn't it have been awesome to be front and center, to be right there, uh, front and center while Jesus was performing his miracles as he was showing the nation of Israel that he was their promised Messiah, that he was the one who came to save the entire world from their sins. And then thinking through our text It reminded me that, you know, if we are Christians, God has, in a sense, worked a miracle for us. If we are Christians, Jesus has interrupted the natural course of our spiritual life and caused us not to be born once, but to be born twice, to be born two times. And we're going to look at David's beautiful song of salvation today, found in 2 Samuel 22. And as we journey through that text, we're going to see that our personal supernatural salvation is going to impact both the way that we think and the way that we live as we journey through this life. So we're going to look today at 2 Samuel 22, but before we go there, I just want to pull you back one step so we can get an overall view of the big picture here. Uh, Remember in our last lesson, 2 Samuel chapter 20, uh, David was returning to Jerusalem. He was coming back to his palace. He was coming back to the kingdom. He was going to the place where he rightfully was called to be by God. Now, if you remember, 2nd Samuel was originally not separate from 1st Samuel. It was all one giant book, and thousands of years ago it was split into two simply for the sake of size. But uh, scholars will point out that 2nd Samuel chapter 21, 22 and twi- 23 and 24 are like an appendix to the book. Uh, There are four chapters that were strategically placed by the authors or the editors or the redactors, ultimately the Holy Spirit, to give us this full picture of David and his life. And the events that take place in 21, 22, 23, and 24 aren't necessarily in Chronicle chronological order, nor are they necessarily events that occurred at the end of David's life. But again, they were carefully and strategically placed there to draw the reader's attention to something. And actually, chapters 21, 22, 23, and 24 form what's called a chiasm. A chiasm is a literary device. It's an ancient literary device that was used by the authors kind of like a modern highlighter would be used. Uh, Back then, they didn't have highlighters to highlight the text, so they would use these chiastic structures to draw our attention to certain points that they really wanted the reader or the hearer to focus on. So I have a slide uh, that shows the chiastic structure of 2 Samuel 21, 22, 23, and 24. And these chiasms are called chiasms because uh, they're named after the Greek letter X, which is not X, but in the Greek language, it's called key. So as you can see, the side of the chiasm, the way that it's structured, it looks like the side of an X. And that's why they call this literary structure a chiasm. And in a chiasm, you have a similar thought on the top and on the bottom And then the next layer down has a similar thought with the layer up from the bottom. And then the center of the chiasm, no matter how many layers it goes, is really the focal point of this literary device. The place where the author wants you to really put your attention. It's like when you throw a rock into a pond and waves ripple out those waves ripple out like the layers, but the place of impact is that focal point or that center point. And some have said it's like a sandwich. Uh, On the top and the bottom, you have the pieces of bread, and those two uh, components are the same. And then underneath the bread, you might have, let's say, the lettuce and tomatoes, and those are the same. And when you get to the center, let's say you're looking at a turkey sandwich, you've got the meat, you've got the turkey there, and that's where the focus is to be. But again, it's a way of using ancient highlighters to get our attention. So... If we look at uh, 21, 22, 23, and 24, we can see that in 21, 1 through 14, the account is of David interceding so that God's wrath against Israel would be appeased because of something that the house of Saul did wrong against the people of Gibeon, the Gibeonites. And then we see the same thing happen in 24, 1 through 25. Uh, This time, it's actually David that violates God's law by putting his confidence in his troops rather than the Lord, but God's wrath is unleashed on Israel. David intercedes and God's wrath is appeased. So we have the same thing going on twice here, like these pieces of bread. And uh, to make it even more clear from the author, there are actually lines in 21, 1 through 14 and 24, 1 through 25 that are almost uh, identical. Uh, for example, in 21, 1, it starts with the fact that there was three years of famine in the land. And then in 24:13, 13, uh, God through the prophet saying to Israel that three years of famine can come to the land. So the same thing going on there. And then in 2114, after David intercedes, in 2114 it says God responded to the plea for the land. And then the very last sentence, the very last line of chapter 24, verse 25, says, Yahweh responded to the plea for the land. So clearly the author here is trying to show us this structure, uh, these parallel layers that would point again to the center. And then if we look at 21, 15 through 22, we'll see this great list of the heroes uh, that warred together and under David on behalf of David's house, his kingdom, and Yahweh. And then we see the same thing in 23, 8 through 39. This list of David's heroic, valiant, mighty men who work together underneath his leadership for the sake of David, his house, and of Yahweh. And then the layers point us to David's trust in God. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 22, which we're gonna look at, is this great song. It's a song of salvation. And 23, 1 through 7 are David's last words. So, according to the chiasm, the highlighters, the focal point that the authors want to direct us to here are the center section. So, it would be 21, 1 through 51 and 23, 1 through 7. Again, focusing in 22 on David's song of salvation. And that should be no surprise to us, right? That God wants to get our attention on salvation. Because in the end, what is more important in this life than the saving of souls? And you know, before we read the text, what's even more interesting is that chapter 22 itself contains a chiastic structure or another chiasm. There's a direction that's taking place in chapter 22 itself. If we look at chapter 22, and as we look at chapter 22, we're going to see that verses one through four talk about praise to the Lord. And then we see the exact same thing in verses 47 through 50, this praise to the Lord. Uh, Then in five through 20, we're going to see the depths, the magnitude, the riches regarding this great salvation that David received. And the same thing in verses 30 through 46. And in the center, we're going to see the reason for deliverance. We're going to see what God did in David's life and through David's life in 22, 21 through 29. So we're gonna begin by looking at those first layers there, those first parallel layers, verses one through four and verses 47 through 50. Let me read those to you. Beginning with 2 Samuel 22, one, it says, and David spoke to Yahweh. The words of this song on the day when Yahweh delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul, and he said, Yahweh is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior. You have saved me from violence. I call upon Yahweh who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. And then in verses 47 through 50, 47, Yahweh lives and blessed be my rock and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation. The God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me, who brought me out from my enemies. You exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. For this, I will praise you, O Yahweh, among the nations and sing praises to your name. So we see here clearly David is thanking God for his salvation. He's praising and thanking God for his salvation. And the first point for us is continually thank God for saving you. Continually thank God for saving you because that's what David was doing here. He was giving thanks to God for his salvation. This song was probably penned Earlier in David's life, uh, in the first verse, it says Yahweh had delivered him from all of his enemies. And this is basically word for word identical to Psalm 18. Well, he says that Yahweh has delivered him from all of his enemies, his enemies like Saul and his enemies like the Philistines. And as we saw, even members of his own household, uh, other clans or tribes within Israel. God delivered him from all of his enemies. God saved him. And you know, God has saved us from our enemies too. Uh, Matthew one twenty one says uh, that the baby Jesus was to be named Jesus because he will deliver his people from their sins we've been delivered from our enemy we've been delivered from our sins james 5:20 says that we have been saved from death and romans chapter 5 verse 9 says that we have been saved from the wrath of god we have been saved from the punishment that we have earned because of breaking god's law Just as David was saved from his enemies, we too have been saved from our enemies through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we look back at those beginning verses there in 2 Samuel chapter 22, we see that God is called these great uh, things. He's called a rock, a fortress, a deliverer, a shield, a horn of salvation, a stronghold, a refuge, and a savior. But as we look at that, what word do we see in front of all of those descriptions? In front of every single one, we see the word my, my. Martin Luther, the great Martin Luther said, the life of Christianity consists of possessive pronouns. A possessive pronoun would be my. It's a possessive pronoun. He said, it's one thing to say, Christ is a savior. It's quite another thing to say, he is my savior and my Lord. And then he went on to say, even the devil can say the first. The true Christian alone can say the second. Even Satan can say, Jesus is a rock. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the Lord. But only the true Christian can say, Jesus is my rock. He's my Savior. He's my Lord. He's my boss. And I do what he says. Is he your Savior? Have you come to that place where you have said, he is my Savior, he is my Lord, and I will follow him? I will do as he says. And if you have, you have every reason in the world to give thanks like David did, to praise God like David did. We have a great reminder of this in the book of Luke. In Luke chapter 10, in Luke 10 verses 10 through 12, we see Jesus uh, sending out 72 of his disciples to kind of prepare the way for him. They're to go into the cities and begin to uh, preach the good news. They're to uh, do uh, great signs on behalf of Jesus. And they had an enormous amount of spiritual success. And in Luke chapter 10, verse 17, it says that they came back to Jesus. And they said to Jesus, Lord, as they returned with joy, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Can you imagine that? The demons being subject to you because of the authority of Christ that you're carrying. And Jesus said to them in verse 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Jesus saying, I have all authority over the unseen realm. And then he says, behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Can you imagine that? Jesus standing there before you saying you have all power, all authority and nothing shall hurt you. I mean, we would feel so encouraged. We would feel like we really had a reason to give thanks, right? And then Jesus says in verse 20, nevertheless, Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That is the greatest, Jesus said. That is the greatest reason for giving thanks to God. That is what should cause any soul to overflow with gratitude and praise like David did. Even our spiritual successes are dwarfed by the fact that our name is written down in heaven. And if you feel at all tempted to yawn internally thinking, yes, I know this, I know I'm saved, I got it, the text would drive us to think otherwise. As we look at the second layer here, we're going to see the magnitude, the greatness of our salvation. And these are two large chunks, and I'm going to read through these. So just hang with me as I read through these two large chunks and just listen for the depths to which God went to save David and the victory that God granted to him. It says in 2 Samuel 22, verse 5, For the waves of death encompassed me, The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon Yahweh. To my God, I called. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry came to his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. "'Smoke went up from his nostrils "'and devouring fire from his mouth. "'Glowing coals flamed forth from him. "'He bowed the heavens and came down. "'Thick darkness was under his feet. "'He rode on a cherub and flew. "'He was seen on the wings of the wind. "'He made darkness around him, his canopy, "'thick clouds, a gathering of water. "'Out of the brightness before him, "'coals of fire flamed forth.' Yahweh thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice, and he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, the foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of Yahweh. At the blast of the breath of his nostrils, he sent from on high, he took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but Yahweh was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. And then verse 30. For by you, I can run against a troop, and by my God, I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of Yahweh proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but Yahweh? And who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge, and he has made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer. He set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your gentleness makes me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them and did not turn back until they were consumed. I consumed them, I thrust them through so that they did not rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with the strength for battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, those who hated me, and I destroyed them. They looked, but there was none to save. They cried to Yahweh, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as the dust of the earth, I crushed them and stamped them down like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from strife with my people. You kept me as the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. Foreigners came cringing to me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. David goes into this beautiful, detailed description here using this rich language to show that it was God. It was Yahweh who saved him when he was totally doomed. When he was in darkness, when he was in desperate conditions, when he had no hope, Yahweh saved him and Yahweh empowered him and Yahweh made him successful. The second point for us is be amazed by the magnitude of your salvation. As David's saying here, he was taken from a desperate situation, situations in which he had absolutely no hope, no possible way that he could save himself or even contribute to the salvation. He depended upon Yahweh And God was the one who stepped in and made everything different for him. And you know, if we're Christians, God has done the same thing for us. Unless God had stepped into our lives, we too would be desperate and we would be doomed. That's what Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says. If you look over at Ephesians chapter two, verses one through three. It begins by talking about our status, where we were apart from God. It says, you were dead, dead, doomed, desperate. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, every one of us. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature because we existed. We were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were dead, we were spiritually dead. There was nothing we could do for ourselves. My uh, youngest daughter who just got married is a pet lover. And she had uh, a hamster recently that she just loved. And uh, she called that hamster Hammy And it was a really cute little hamster. Uh, You know, hamsters are notorious for biting. This hamster never bit anyone once. Uh, It was so soft and cute and whenever she would come home, it would run to the side of the cage and just stand there waiting for her. And she'd hold him and she'd go down to the refrigerator in the kitchen and get grapes and wash the grapes off and put half a grape in his little tiny hands. And he'd sit there and nibble on the grape and she just loved this little hamster. Well, as he got older, you know, those hamster cages have all sorts of little tunnels and ledges and platforms and wheels. He was up on one of his little platforms and he fell off and landed on his back. And it really messed up his back. And from then on, he had to drag his little back feet everywhere that he went. And after that, he started to deteriorate very rapidly. Um, One day she came in and he was in the bottom of his cage, just hanging by a thread there. And she was crushed, just devastated. She loved hammy. And she found a vet in Lake Forest who uh, worked with hamsters. So we put him in a little shoebox and took him to Lake Forest. And I could see the vet was looking at me like, there's no way. I mean, how old is the hamster? He was 3 years old. He was, you know, kind of saying this hamster's not going to make it, but of course she didn't hear that. So the vet said that he would put the hamster under an incubator and see what he could do. Well, she had to go off to a work thing in LA, and the vet's office called and said, you know, the hamster's not going to make it and the right thing to do would just be to help it to exit the painful state that it's in right now. So she's up in LA crushed and she said, mom, can you go back to the vets and can you hold hammy while he dies? (sighs) I'm like, can I bring my laptop? (laughs) No. (laughs) No. But, you know, she loved that hamster. So I went down there, and uh, the vet came into the room and gave Hammy a little injection, and he died. Seeing that little furry guy, you know, so bubbly and full of life now, he was just stiff and dead. And what if I had reached into my pocket or reached into my purse and said, Hammy, here's a grape. You love grapes. Would the hamster respond? Would he take the grape? What would happen if the vet came back into the room and saw me offering Hammy a grape? He would think I was nuts, right? Unless God broke natural law and brought Hammy back from the dead, there's no way he's taking the grape. And the same thing is true for us, right? We were spiritually dead, the Bible says absolutely dead. But Ephesians 2 chapter 4 says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. How amazing is that? Do we appreciate the magnitude of this salvation that God has supernaturally worked this event in our life to bring us from death to life so that we could be saved? And if we have been saved, our salvation, our new birth, our regeneration, it will make a difference. It will make a difference in the way that we think and the way that we live. And we see that as we look at the third layers here in our chiasm in this passage, the intersection of the passage. This is where we take uh, the highlighters, the highlight area, and we re-highlight over it again. It's like 22 was in yellow, and now these verses, 21 through 29, are in green. Let's listen to what this says. It says, Yahweh dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of Yahweh. And have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me, and from his statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. And Yahweh has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. For you are my lamp, O Yahweh, and my God lightens my darkness. Well, as we look at this intersection here, this focal section... Is there anything strange about what David's saying? As he says there in verses 21 through 25 that God dealt with him according to his righteousness, the cleanness of his hands, he's kept the way of Yahweh. Did God save David because he was good, because he was righteous, because he was blameless? Absolutely not. No, that's not what this text is saying. Uh, For example, in Psalm 130, verse 3, it says, If you, O Yahweh, should mark iniquities, O Yahweh, who could stand? Not one person could stand before God because we've all sinned. But what David is saying here, he's saying that because of those layers, because God rescued him from death, because God delivered him from death, because God saved him, because God made him blameless, he would now live consistently with that blameless status before God. And that's our third point. Live consistently with your true identity. Live consistently with your true identity. Because if you are a Christian today, if God has taken you from death to life, if God has allowed you to experience a new birth, a rebirth, being born again, then you are positionally blameless before a holy God. If you were anything less than blameless, anything less than righteous, anything less than perfect, you could not be in an intimate relationship with God. But because we are in Christ, we are holy. How amazing is that? Ephesians chapter one, verse one, Paul addressing the church at Ephesus there calls the believers the saints who are in Ephesus. And the same thing in Philippians 1.1, 1, 1. the address is to all the saints. And Colossians 1.2, to the saints. The saints are the holy. Holy ones, the ones who have been made holy, the ones who have been made blameless, the ones who have been made perfect in Christ. And again, if we have been made perfect, we need to live, to choose to live consistently with this great calling. And not only do we need to, but you know what? We will. We will, when God works that miraculous conversion within our heart, he rewires us from the inside out and he causes us to live differently. Think about what Ezekiel said thousands of years ago in Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. God saying, I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you will be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. God will make us purified and blameless and holy. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God says when he regenerates us, when he takes out our rock hard heart and gives us a heart of flesh, when he fills us with the third person of the triune God, his Holy Spirit, he then causes us to live differently, to desire to obey his rules. And we see the same thing in the New Testament, in Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, these great verses about how none of us can save ourselves. We need God to interrupt there. It says in verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. You didn't do it you didn't have the faith. It says it's the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. And then it goes on for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If we have been saved by grace through faith, we will live differently. We just will. It naturally comes from the new birth. And you might be thinking right now, I want to. I want to walk in God's ways. I want to obey him. I want to be seen as blameless. But I mess up all the time. Well... Did David mess up? Sure, right? Do you think the author of 2 Samuel, the authors, the editors, the redactors, God's Spirit didn't know that David messed up when they wrote this giant volume and added these last four chapters to the book? Of course they did. They knew that David sent others when he should have gone himself. They knew that David stayed home when he should have been at war. They knew that he took Bathsheba for himself because he lusted after her beauty. They knew that he killed her husband to cover up his crime. They knew that he didn't get involved when his son Amnon raped his daughter Tamar. They knew that he wailed over Absalom, the enemy of Israel. And they knew that he was going to be seen as doing more in the next chapter. But despite his failures, his failures past and his failures future, David did what God said and he confessed his sin and he forsook his sin and he got up and he pressed on. He got up and he continued to live according to God's laws and God's principles and he could live blamelessly because he did as God said when he sinned. And that's why we see later on, thousands of years later, or a thousand years later in the book of Acts, Acts 13, 22, it's recorded of David. It says, God saying, I have found in David the son of Jesse, A man after my heart who will do all my will. Unbelievable, right? How amazing is that? How encouraging this should be for us. It's not about our failures it's not about our sins. It's about us doing what God says when we fail, when we sin. It's about coming to him in confession and repentance, forsaking our sin, getting up and moving forward, being obedient to his word. If you failed, and I know you have, we all have, When you fail, don't get discouraged. Don't become spiritually paralyzed. But do what David did. Don't think you're useless or you're benched now forever. Do what David did. Confess your sin. Forsake your sin. Get up and do what's right. Because he has made us blameless. We can now choose to live blamelessly. And you might think, how do we choose to live blamelessly? No one can live blamelessly. Yes, we can. We have to remember there are two types of blamelessness. There's that vertical blamelessness that would be us standing before God saying we are sinless and no one, no one is there. No one is there. No one ever will be there. But horizontally in our relationships with one another, we can live blamelessly. We can live the way that God's called us to live. And you know what? We see this all over the Bible. I mean, think about the book of Job. In Job chapter one, verse one, for example, God said there was a man named Job and that man was blameless and upright. Didn't mean he was sinless, but he was blameless. He obeyed God. In Luke uh, chapter one, verse six, Uh, Zachariah and Elizabeth, the parents of John the Baptist, it says that they were righteous before God and they walked blamelessly. That means when they sinned, they confessed their sin, they forsook their sin, and they desired to obey God. In 1 Timothy 3.2, it says that an overseer or a pastor, he must be above reproach someone that you can't find fault with. And when they sin, they will confess and forsake and do what's right before God. 1 Timothy 3.10, talking about a deacon, a key servant in the church. It says they must prove themselves blameless. 1 Thessalonians 2.10, Paul saying to the church there at Thessalonica, he said that we lived holy and righteous and blameless in our conduct towards you. And you might think, okay, I just need a little push though. How do I live blamelessly? What are some things I can do to live blamelessly? And you know what? There is one last chiasm in our passage here, in the center section, that will give us a few quick tips. If we look at Chapter 22, verses 21 through 25, there is a final chiastic structure. It's like we've got 22 is the yellow highlighter, 21 through 29 is the green highlighter, and now there's a sharpie over the center of this chiastic structure here. In 21 through 25, it says, if you look at 21 and 25, you're gonna see the same thing there. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. And then look at 25. Yahweh has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. The same thing. There's the bread layers again. And what's this saying? It's saying that David remembered that God rewards obedience. And it's so important if we want a tip here to remember that God rewards obedience. Keep that branded on your heart and your mind. God rewards obedience. He does. He rewards obedience. And we all want to live in a way that we look back over our life and say, I have no regrets. And if we live obediently, If we do things God's way, we can look back over our life with minimal regrets. Doesn't mean we're going to have easy lives. Doesn't mean we're going to have painless lives. But we want lives without regret. We want lives that God will reward and say, well done, good and faithful servant. You did as I asked you to do. And uh, having been here on staff since the beginning of Compass, I've met with many women. And when they're experiencing regrets, you can always trace it back to a point where they disobeyed God, where they were disobedient to God, his laws, and his principles. So if you want to live without regrets, if you want to be rewarded by God, which we all do, live obediently. Obey his rules, even when you don't feel like it, do what he says, and you will be blessed. And then the second layer here, it says, I have kept the ways of the Lord. And then the same verb, I kept myself from guilt. And that keeping there is like a restraint. It's like a holding back there. And you know, when I think about being kept from guilt, being held back, being guarded from guilt is literally what the verb would say, I've guarded myself from guilt. We sometimes need people around us to help us, to help us be guarded against guilt, guarded against sin so that we can be careful and be guarded to keep the ways of the Lord instead. You know, I think about uh, when you're guarded, Uh, if you were, uh, you know, on the playground at school, let's say, and we've been on the playground at school, let's say, and there's a fight that's going to break out. And, you know, the rules of the school are no fighting, right? And this fight's going to break out, and you see the strong guy or whatever, and he's got these two good friends who reach in and pull him back and say, no, 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 don't fight, right? Don't do it, don't go there. And that's what we need We need a couple friends, two, three friends here who are gonna get in life with us and help us here. So find friends who will keep you from sin. Find people who will jump in and hold you back. Uh, That's what we call accountability. People who know us, uh, people who know where we might be tempted, where we can keep ourselves away from guilt. We can keep the ways of the Lord people who we can be honest with and people who will tell us the truth even when it's not what we want to hear and people who will follow up and say, how did you do? Were you successful? And then the third layer there, the Cs in our diagram, the third layer says, I have not wickedly departed from my God and I was blameless before him. I was blameless. I have not wickedly departed from him. We don't want to depart from God. And we need God's help in that. We need to rely upon him and depend upon him. So ask God's spirit every day for forgiveness and for help. And you know, that's what Jesus taught his disciples. When the disciples said, Lord, teach us how to pray in Matthew 6, 11 through 13, Jesus, assuming they would pray this every day, said in verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. So the assumption is there that they're asking daily, right? And forgive us our debts every day, saying, God, forgive me of my sins as we have forgiven our debtors And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Saying, God, I want to be blameless before you. I don't want to depart from you. Deliver me from evil, God. Asking God's spirit for continual forgiveness and continual help. And then the fourth layer, our highlighter. Our highlighter on a highlighter on a sharpie. All his rules were before me. I did not turn aside from his statutes. Should be no surprise to us, the author points us to the scriptures, to the word of God. We need to saturate ourselves with the word of God. And that's the fourth tip here. Saturate yourself with the word of God. We've got to keep on doing it. We've gotta stay in God's word. Read the Bible daily, read the daily Bible reading together with the church. Come to church on the weekend, come to Bible study, come to other ministries at church, even when you feel like you don't wanna do it anymore. We need to keep his rules before us and not turn aside from his statutes, not disobey his word. Because when we go back out into the world, when we go back to regular life, all the messages that we hear are gonna put our focus on self and they're gonna tell us a different message. So we need to fight, we need to do whatever we can to keep God's word before us, to keep focused on his word, to be in his word constantly and to be obedient to us. Thank God we go to Compass Bible Church, right? What a great place to be where that emphasis is on the word of God. And because of the supernatural nature of our conversion, we can live blamelessly. When we sin, we confess our sin, we forsake our sin, we trust in God, we get up, we move forward, and we press on. In the final verse in this chapter, uh, verse 21, scholars have said it's a postscript or like a P.S. David says Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. David trusted that he was the anointed of God despite all of the troubles and trials and hardships that he faced in life. And he believed that God was going to keep his promise not only to him, but to his offspring. He took God's word at face value and depended on his promises. God's promise to forgive him, to save him, and to make a difference in and through his life. We need to be in the same place. When we look in the mirror, do we see a broken sinner or do we see someone who has been saved by God's grace? Do we see a woman who loves her Savior more than she loves her sin? If so, let's show the watching world what this new birth means, what our regeneration means. Let's show the, new, the world what this salvation that God has wrought within us really looks like. Let's go out and determine to do things his way. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. I thank you for this rich text of Second Samuel chapter 22. I thank you, God, that we can see David's gratitude, his praise, his thanksgiving for his salvation. And God, we just want to, together with him, say, thank you, Lord, for saving us. God, thank you for using this text to remind us, to awaken within us a knowledge of how much you did to save us, uh, how great the wonderful magnitude of our salvation, Lord God. And if there's anyone here who hasn't yet made this her own, who hasn't gone from saying Jesus is a savior or the savior or the Lord to he is my savior and my Lord and I will do as he says. I pray that you would help her to have the courage and the strength necessary, God, to respond rightly today, Lord. God, please help us to see No matter how defeated we've been or how discouraged we've been, if we confess our sins and forsake our sins, we can get up and obey your word and live blamelessly, Lord. God, we desire to live blamelessly before you. Help us, Lord God, to remember that you reward obedience May we find sisters in Christ who are like-minded to fight together to keep us from sin and to keep us in obedience to your word. God, may we continually ask you for forgiveness and help and may we keep your word constantly before us, Lord. Help us to obey it. God, we know that none of this, none of this would be true for us if it wasn't for your son, and the great work that he did for us in living the life that we couldn't live and dying for our sins, taking on the punishment that we deserve. So we pray, God, in Jesus' precious name, amen. You guys are dismissed to your groups.